If you're new, my name is Steve. Welcome to Citadel Square. You picked a great Sunday to join us for baby dedication, isn't it? Isn't that an awesome day to join? Uh, we are in the middle of a little bit of a mini-series in the book of Luke. So if you've got a Bible, I'd I want to invite you to turn to somewhere before we get to Luke. We're going to end up for most of our time here today in Luke chapter 5. Uh, but if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew rack in front of you. should be a black one, an ESV Bible. If you do not have a Bible, uh, that is our gift to you. Take it. Read it till the cover cup falls off. Come on back. We'll give you another one. Uh, I want you to turn with me just in preparation for our time here to 1 John chapter 2. John writes his epistle to the church to give you an idea of what life is like in the world. Uh, and John, having walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, writes uh, about some problems that exist in the culture that the church is going to have to face. And in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, he talks about life in the sinful world. We all face life in a sinful and broken world with sinful and broken hearts and sinful and broken relationships. And what John does for you is just briefly give you an overview of the major temptations that you're going to find as you walk through life in a sinful world. And commentators look at this passage as a little bit of a metric by which we understand understand the temptations that Jesus faces in the desert with Satan. 1 John chapter 2 verse 15 says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now last week we looked at the temptation between uh, Jesus and Satan that had to do with uh, Jesus facing this temptation of a legitimate need, but meeting that legitimate need in an illegitimate way, allowing his physical desires after fasting for 40 days in the wilderness, allowing his physical desires to compromise his dependence on the Lord and his provision for his needs and the timing of the provision for those needs. And you would call that, according to 1 John chapter 2 here, the desires of the flesh. We all have physical desires that tempt us throughout our life on this earth. Well, today what we're going to do is turn from the desires of the flesh and we're going to look at the desires of the eyes. So what I want you to do is turn from 1 John chapter 2 back to where we're going to be in our time here together in Luke chapter 4. So turn on back with me to Luke chapter 4. This is going to be a little bit of a different temptation, as I'm sure you will discover during our time of working through it here this morning. We are a visually driven culture. Uh, if you watched the Super Bowl, then you know one of the most important parts of the Super Bowl experience is watching what happens during the commercials. And you know that whatever kind of, you could do this, I didn't Google this research, you could do this research on your own. Just research how many millions of dollars were spent to get 30 seconds, 60 seconds, two minutes of the time to put your product in the eyes of the individuals and capture their attention capture their affection and compel them to purchase your product, to give their time and attention and even their money toward investing in that which you have to offer. 
and the millions of dollars that went into the media machine to capture our attention for just a few seconds where the advertisers can get you to believe that your needs or your hopes and your dreams for your life can somehow be satisfied if you buy toothpaste, an electric car, Claritin, beer. We live in a culture of Facebook and Instagram where you can adjust and modify and edit and control and create a life that is seen from only certain angles and only in certain lighting to communicate a story about you and your life that you want the world to recognize. We live in a time of a growing sector of virtual reality where you can purchase goggles and glasses and gloves to step into a world and completely immerse yourself and all of your senses into a world that is designed to satisfy your desires, your hopes, your dreams, according to your timing, your perspective, and your power. That's the world that we live in. We are constantly assaulted through our eyes with promises and stories and objects that promise that we might have a better life than we have right now. Can I get an amen? You been there? That's this temptation. So this is a very important, a very particular temptation. It's a temptation that you're going to see yourself in that I, as I've spent time in this message this week, have seen myself in. Satan is about to put on and give Jesus Christ the very best commercial ever. And he's going to do it in three verses. And Jesus, by his power, is going to untangle it for us and bring this temptation to nothing. So the goal of our time here together is really for us to see what God is trying to teach us in an account like this, to get us to see ourselves and the temptations that we wrestle with, and then to gain great confidence in the fact that Jesus is our champion and our hero and can defeat these temptations that so easily entangle and trip us up. So that's what you're going to see here to morning as we spend some time in God's word together. Would you pray with me? And then we'll jump in here to Luke chapter 4 together. Father, we pause after singing of the glory of who you are, the glory of grace, the, the victory of the cross. We pause as we have spoken your word and we've confessed our sins and the songs that we have sung and we come as desperate and dependent people desiring to hear truth and good news from your word. So I pray that for the few minutes that we spend looking into your word here this morning, for those who come in this morning and are facing and feeling the temptations that come by looking at things in their life, I pray that you would give them great freedom. That as a result of our time together, Holy Spirit, you would cause this text in our hands to come alive for us, that it would be radioactive and electric and tear down temptations and mirages in our life that we have a tendency to so quickly believe and so quickly put our hope in. And then would you turn our eyes to Christ? We pray for your grace, and it's in his name we pray, amen. 
All right, well, last week we looked at Luke chapter 4 and just looked at 1 through 4. Today we're going to look at Luke chapter 4, looking at 5 through 8 at this second temptation. So take a look with me here at the beginning, uh, Luke 4, verse 5. I'll get that cough out of the way and we'll go. And the devil, verse 5, took him up. Now, if you remember how these temptations began, the temptations began uh, really set in the context of Jesus being called the Son of God by divine right and divine commendation as he stood in the water with sinners who were repenting for their sins. Heavens opened, God himself spoke, the Spirit descended, and he said, you are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And then we were introduced to the genealogy, which proves that Jesus is not only the Son of God by heaven's commendation and heaven's recognition, but he is also the son of God by physical descent. He himself is a physical descendant of Adam. And then the Holy Spirit led him into the wilderness as if we are pausing to watch this brand new man, this brand new Adam take on the temptations of the devil himself. And last week we watched him face that first temptation with hunger. But here in this temptation, the devil, you know, what was created last week was a temptation that came on the heels of Jesus' willful decision to fast, right? It was a temptation that the devil took advantage of, that he saw Jesus' decision to fast and spend time in the wilderness with his heavenly father as he prepares to step into his public ministry, but then the devil took advantage of Jesus and his weakened state. This temptation is different, this temptation, I mean, how many times do you, do you struggle with failing to temptation after spending 40 days in fasting? I mean, it feels a little like, well, I've never done that, so I don't know what that's like. But this temptation is a little more common. It feels a little more normal because we all feel moments in our lives where temptation surprises us. We have a set of circumstances presented to us that force us to reckon with right or wrong and good and evil and uh, wise or foolish. And what happens in this temptation is the devil controls the narrative. While we are confident that the Holy Spirit has led Jesus into the wilderness, the devil now acts, he moves, he does something to take Jesus somewhere and to present Jesus a temptation. So that's where we start. The devil took him up. In Matthew, this is described as being taken to a very high mountain or a very high place. And the devil, in, the, in his intentionality with this temptation, is going to put Jesus in a very particular place to see a very particular thing. Now, you'll notice if you've read these accounts in Matthew, the Matthew accounts switch uh, this temptation and the temptation we'll look at next week. And Matthew probably has them in chronological order. So it's probably that this account here is ordered in such a way to give us a, a thoughtful approach to how Luke uses the geography. The first one he's in the wilderness, the second one he's on a mountain, and Luke's account will land with Jesus at the temple, which is, we'll see as we go through the book of Luke, a very important place for Luke to show you that Jesus himself is going to go into the very house of God and be victorious there too. But enough for us to say here that the devil took him up and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The Greek is, is pretty clear here in this word showed. It's not a demonstration. It's literally in the Greek that it's put before his eyes, which helps us understand that this is Satan's best version of a commercial. 
It's Satan's best shot at tempting Jesus through what he sees. Last week, he felt the gnawing of hunger. This week, Jesus is going to see something with the Satan's goal to entice him to believe something. So he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. It's a comprehensive vision. He's allowed to see everything that the world has to offer, but it shows it to him in a brief window. And as I've meditated on that, you know, I've thought about that all week. Why is it that Satan presents this temptation with such brevity? Why is it that Satan gives him a comprehensive vision, but he doesn't allow Jesus to dwell on it? We, we, um, we have six kids. If you're new, welcome. We're a prolific family. Uh, we have six children. And from time to time, my children will get gifts, and they get uh, gift cards from time to time. And my li- one of my little ones, my two little girls, got a gift card. And she's just at the age, she's five, where she's recognizing the power that comes with a gift card. She's at, just right at the beginning. And it's fun to watch her figure that out. The r- most recent gift card she got, she had no idea what she wanted, but she had this gift card from her grandparents. And she was so ready to spend the gift card. All she knew was that the thing she wanted, which she couldn't articulate, what do you want? I don't know. What would you like to spend it on? I'm not sure. Do you know? Give me some options. I don't know. I just know it's at Target. (laughs) That's all you know. Can we go to Target? Is today the day? Whatever it is that I want. I'm not even sure what it is. But I know once I get into those toy aisles at Target, I'm going to find the thing for which my soul longs. I know it, Dad. And you can see all of, you know, she's this pretty little girl with all of her hopes and dreams. They're right there in the front. She's got her gift card, and she's holding it. She's ready to go. And if you're, hey, we've got kids in the room. I just hear, guys, let me, let me tell you, like, you have been at that spot. You don't know, and you've, you know, we have another thing that happens with our, with our kids is they get in the toil aisle, and they're so overwhelmed with the glory. That it, it's just aisle to aisle of looking at all of the possible things that they want. And inevitably, somebody makes a purchase that, newsflash, is not a wise purchase. But, but when they're in the they're in the aisle and everything's on their level and it's all provided for them right in front of their eyes. They have made decisions that they get home and about 24 hours later, they find out that it's not the thing they really wanted. <sighs> Parents, you with me? You have stuff in your garage that has now become the thing that at one time was the fulfillment of all their hopes and dreams and desires and now has spider webs on it. So the brevity of the temptation, I think, is here for a purpose. Do you ever make decisions quickly that you regret? Have you ever decided something that you thought for sure was the right call, the right move, the right decision, and then you get on the other side about 24, about 48 hours, about 10 years, and you go, oh, gosh, that was not a good decision. I'm a trigger puller. That's great. But man, I live with a lot of regret on the other side. So Satan is intentional to put in front of Jesus' eyes for just a moment a comprehensive vision of all of the kingdoms of the world. Now, seeing something does not a temptation make, right? You can can see this. 
you're not necessarily tempted by this. Right? You don't even know, some of you don't even know what this, this is. If you're in the world of microphones, you, thought, you may think, maybe that's a good thing. But just seeing something, you know this, just seeing something doesn't create a temptation. What you need is a story. What you need is a narrative. You need a story that is built around an object to get you to the point where you are willing to believe something about this object that you're so certain of, you're so confident of, that it takes on center space in your mind and in your heart. Let me, let me illustrate it for you from the beginning of our Bibles. You know the story of Adam and Eve and Satan in the beginning of our Bibles. And as, as Satan is having this conversation with Eve about God and who he is and his restrictions and whether or not he's good and he's not a good father and he's withholding from you, he puts out a narrative, a story, some assumptions about God, the creation, the where God has put them, the garden, the goals, what could be, and he wraps all of that narrative and all of that story around the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know how it goes. I'll just read it for you. You don't need to turn there. Genesis 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And both of those things were true and the things that God has created and that the tree was, listen, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. <clears throat> she believed a story. There was a narrative that showed up in her life and in her heart and the way she thought about God and the fruit and Satan and the garden and her husband and the opportunities and everything that could be. Let me tell you something. You are by nature a visionary. In the deepest parts of your soul, you tell yourself stories. You believe narratives that you create. I believe narratives that I create. And when temptation shows up in our life, it's not so much the object that gets us. It's the story we tell ourselves about that object that those chips will turn into that party, right? That beer will create such community and such friendship of people who all miraculously look like models. I need that beer. That car will create the power and the authority that I so desire in my life. You by nature, I by nature am a visionary. I believe stories. So what's the story? Right? What's the story? What story is Satan going to build around all the kingdoms of the world as he shows them to Jesus in a moment of time? That's what you're listening for. That's what you're watching for. Look at verse 6. And he said to him, to you. Now, you know what every good story needs? Every good story, every great movie you have watched needs a protagonist. You watch Gladiator? Who's the protagonist in Gladiator? Commodus Maximus. 
What's his name? Maxim, okay. Am I wrong? Don't worry about it. It had nothing to do with the sermon. What's his name? Russell Crowe, right? Before you found out he could sing in uh, Les Mis. It's great, right? You can sing? Anyway, also nothing to do with the sermon. The point is, here's Satan. And he begins the story with a protagonist. And what he does is he puts you right in the center of the story. And he begins with Jesus, and he goes, Jesus, to you, I'm going to build this narrative and this story around you, around who you are. I've shown you all the kingdoms of the world in just a moment. And now, Jesus, I want you to enter into this story with me. Now, if you've watched movies before, there are several movies out there that introduce you to a narrator. And inevitably, what happens when we watch a movie is we have a tendency to believe what the narrator says, Right? Inevitably, we open up the movie and we believe there's really a place called the Shire, there's really a guy named Gandalf, there's really Frodo in the ring, and there's, we, we get swept up. We really believe there's an Iron Man, we really believe that whatever else, there's Jason Bourne, okay, I get it. The government works like that, and here's the hero, and this is what he's fighting against, and all that. All of that is the narrative assumptions. And what Satan does to begin this story is put Jesus in center stage, and that's really what Jesus, or what Satan does with all of us. Every temptation starts with you. It puts you in the center of the story. Every single temptation you're facing right now has to do with you. It has to do with who you are and what you're facing. To you, I will give. Which means every temptation not only puts you in the center, but it also puts you face-to-face with a promise. So here's the promise that comes from Satan to Jesus. To you, I will give all this authority and their glory. Now, authority is used throughout Luke's um, account to talk about the authority of Jesus' words, to talk about the fact that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's used of political rulers like Herod who have authority, that the disciples are given authority to cast out demons. So it... As Satan paints this picture of all the kingdoms of the world, he says all of these kingdoms have a measure of authority. They have a measure of power in the places that they are. It's a comprehensive vision of all power and all authority in every place. But not only that, he also says all of these kingdoms and all of these places with all of this authority and all of this power has a certain sense of glory. Now, glory has been a a word that has been used by Luke when it speaks about the angels singing in front of the shepherds, that the glory of God shone round about them. So, are you with me so far? What's the temptation? All the kingdoms of the world. What's the temptation? Jesus right in the center of the temptation. What is the promise? Jesus given all authority and all power and all splendor that goes along with those positions. So I will remind us, is the devil a competent and reliable narrator? Now before you get into the rest of this temptation, you have to ask and answer that question. Remember what Jesus calls the devil? He's the father of lies. So let's peel this apart. You know, do you see why temptations come so quick and demand such an answer so, so quickly? 
Because we don't want to spend time thinking rationally, thinking with truth in mind about what the temptations are that we're facing. To you I will give all this authority and their glory. Look at the remainder of the verse. For it has been delivered to me, literally put into my hand. And number two, I give it to whom I will. So let's, let's think a little bit. Have the kingdoms of the world been delivered to Satan? Let me just give you some verses that I think back up the fact that what Satan is saying has some validity. You see this throughout really the New Testament treatment of Satan and who he is. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power. There's that word authority, power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 1 John chapter 5, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the, there it is again, the power of the evil one. Let me give you one more, 2 Corinthians 4, speaking of Satan and the the tactic he takes in our world currently. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, In their case, speaking of unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So at least in some way, this world is under the widespread influence and control of Satan. You with me? Now the second part, the second part is right here. I give it to whom he will. Does Satan have authority over these kingdoms by divine right or by divine permission? What do you think? He has authority by divine permission, and that permission comes from God. So think carefully with me. Commentators say that at best, this temptation in front of Jesus is an exaggeration, and at worst, it's an outright lie. But the question we have to ask and answer is, why is this temptation a powerful temptation to Jesus? Why is this a temptation that Satan would decide is temptation number two? Now, watch verse 7. If you then... Now... This is fantastic because Satan, though he talks and he's an unreliable narrator and his position as he begins the temptation is probably not totally accurate, Satan also tells you something in what I'm going to call the terms and conditions. You ever read the terms and conditions? No, nobody does. You're not actually supposed to. You're supposed to scroll to the bottom, click the box that says you did read them, install the software, and keep going about your day. Because who wants to read the stuff that lawyers write? Nobody. Now, if you then, here are the terms and conditions. Every temptation comes with a price. Amen? Every temptation comes with a promise and it comes with a price. That's how temptations work. Bad temptations comes with a high price and no promise. Bad temptations come with no price and high promise. But a great temptation comes with both price and promise. You like getting deals? I like getting the most for the least. Don't you? Are you with me? Okay. You've used a coupon. <laughs> if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. So here's our question, guys. We, we gotta, you got to wrestle with this. you got to think about this. The only way you're going to unravel temptation in your own life is to think deeply about Jesus Christ and the truth of God. You've got to do that work. 
So I'm not doing this to be pedantic and to spread out the length of the amount of sermon I've got to preach because I've only got three verses. We could be done real quick. The reason we're going so slowly around this is so that you would work the meditative muscles. You would work the thinking brain that you have to understand why is it that this temptation is so powerful and so designed for Jesus? Why is it that this temptation and this trade is what Satan decides to put on the table? If you then will worship me. So, why is it that this is what Satan wants? Why isn't it something else? Have you thought this week that your worship was so valuable so important, so central to your life that Satan would be willing to trade the world for it. Isn't that interesting? What is it? Because this tells us something about Satan. When he makes the deal, Satan is willing to give up authority, power, control, and glory and push it all in the middle as long as he gets worship. Now, this is, is not something that's typically seen. It's something that's assumed throughout most of the New Testament until you get to the book of Revelation. Now, I'm not going to turn there. You can read this on your own. You read Revelation 13, which is one of the cross-references in this passage, where Revelation 13 talks about all of the nations of the world bowing before the beast, to whom the dragon, who is Satan, gives his power. So by the end of your Bible, there are no more coexist stickers on, bumper, on bumpers, bumper plates, bumper, whatever. They're not there anymore because by the time you get to the end of your Bible, Satan says, everyone bows the knee to me. You have one world political power and one world religion. And you either worship Satan or you die. So Satan lets us in to understanding that worship is the most important thing about you. Worship is the most important thing about Jesus. Why? Because worship determines your eternity. If you think you receive Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for your sins and then you're going to get to heaven and go, gosh, I don't like this God that much. You have not figured out how worship works. Worship consistently is forming us into the kind of people who will long to spend our eternity with the good, great, gracious, pure, holy God that he is. And Satan says, if I can have it now, I'll give you everything the world has to offer. Jesus, trade your father for a better father. Do you know, remember how we looked at, I think we said this last week. Remember Psalm 2? Psalm 2 says uh, um, something real good. <clears throat> I can't remember it. Let me just go to it real quick. I'll read it for you real quick. Psalm 2, here it is. I'll tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Do you know what the very next verse is? We just talked about the sonship of God in Luke chapter 3. The very next verse in Psalm 2, verse 8, says this, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. Isn't that interesting? That all the way back in Psalm 2, a messianic psalm talking about Jesus and what he deserves and how the fact that he is going to receive all of the world. 
makes us question, why is this temptation so important for Jesus now? Why is this temptation the one that Satan uses to put in front of Jesus? Have you ever wanted to skip a season in life? Just hit the DVR fast forward and get out of all the persevering and the exposing of your sin and the having to repent and having to learn a lesson and having to go through all of that rigmarole and just go, can we just get to the next season? Can we just get to the end? Can we skip all the painful walking with God through the valley of the shadow of death? I'd much rather the quiet, still waters and the green pastures. Can we do that? And here this temptation is in front of Jesus where he has the end of the story put right in front of him. That's what all good commercials are. They tell you how much weight you're going to lose, how awesome you're going to be, how wonderful your life is if you would just buy that product. So here's Jesus having all the kingdoms of the world right in front of him. One commentator put it like this. I thought it was great. I'll just read it to you. There's a guy named C.H. Lenski. Commentator on the New Testament says this. He still buys men in this way. But never at a price so great at that which he offered to Jesus. It may seem foolish on Satan's part to come to Jesus with such such a temptation. And to think that Jesus might be bought this way. But after succeeding with his offers to other men in thousands of instances, Satan felt that this man, Jesus, would certainly succumb to an offer that was more magnificent than any he had ever made. Do you feel this temptation yet? Do you know how many stories I believe that are not true? Do you know how many temptations you face every single day that are begging you to believe a false narrative, that are begging you to build your life something on something other than Jesus Christ and him crucified, that are begging for you to believe lies and so order your life and trade your worship, the only most essential thing about who you are, for authority, power, glory, fulfillment, hopes, dreams here. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So here he is. Here's the hero. Here's the author and perfecter of our faith. Facing down the devil and the best he's got. How's he going to win? What's he going to do? Verse 6, I'm sorry, verse 8. Jesus answered him, it is written. Man. So you're telling me, with those three words, it is written, what is more real to Jesus' human physical perception is the story that the word of God tells? You're telling me in the face of the best high-def 4K commercial that Satan has, something that is more real to Jesus and has more staying power in his perspective is what God has spoken. It is written. You know, I read this and I go, is the story of God's word 
more real to me than my own temptations? And unfortunately, I have to confess as I read this and I study this and I meditate on this, I have to say no. How often I set aside the word of God to believe things that are not true about myself, about others, about my hopes, my, pre my dreams, my future, my desires, all of those things. I am so prone to believe things about life and myself that are false stories. It's like driving a car that's out of alignment. You, ever, you feel like that? Where your heart is constantly pulling you constantly pulling you and you got to by God's grace and the word and the spirit pull it back into the center so Jesus says it is written now again as I said last week Jesus faces temptation down with the power of the book of Deuteronomy which is kind of depressing in and of itself anyway because we don't know that much about Deuteronomy but I want to show you what Jesus does and why he uses this temptation and the word that he uses to blow away the mirage of the false story that Satan is trying to get him to believe. Look at what he says at the end. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Well, that's easy. Is that all it takes in temptation? You just speak one sentence of God's word somewhere in the car and that's it just everything goes away? That's not how it works for me. So there must be something with what Jesus is saying here to help us understand why God's word is so essentially powerful and what Jesus does to blow away the mirage of the commercial so clearly and therefore defeat the temptation. Now this word that Jesus gives us is from Deuteronomy 6. So keep your finger, I want you to look at both. Keep your finger in Luke and turn back with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 10. Watch this. What, what uh, Moses is doing to this second group of Israelites, we've buried our fathers in the desert. We're coming into the promised land for the second, for the, for the second try. Uh, Moses is giving the, Deuteron the Deuteronomic law, the second giving of the law to this new generation of people. And what he does is enter into his own commercial. He gives his own picture of the future. To this second generation of people, because this second generation of people just had to bury their parents because of their parents' disbelief in God and his word. Deuteronomy 6.10. And when, which is a time word. He's talking to them now and he says, let me take you into the future together. Let me grab you by the hand and bring you to a place that you are not yet there. And when the Lord your God, your covenant-keeping God, your God who is faithful to you brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you didn't fill and cisterns you didn't dig and vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. And when you eat and are full, here's the warning, take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When did he bring them out of the land of Egypt? In the past. Where are they now? In the present. Where's this picture? Of the, of the future. Take care that you don't forget. Now, that's an interesting word to use. Why is it that the nation of Israel might have this temptation to forget? It's the temptation to forget happens and shows up when they get everything they want. Huh. Well, that's interesting. There's a place 
where the nation of Israel might in fact get everything that God had promised to them. And then when they step into the promised land, what gets them is their failure to remember, to put God as the central place in their life and their heart. You see why Jesus is using this verse? You see why Jesus is using this section of Deuteronomy? Now here's what Jesus says. What he says and what he quotes is Deuteronomy 6 verse 13. Here it is. And I want, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read verse, verse 13, and then I want you to go back to see what Jesus said in verse 8, back in Luke, okay? Bible drills. You're going to do great, I promise you. Verse 13. It's the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Well, that's, that's pretty good, right? That's a pretty good answer. But Jesus doesn't quote the verse exactly right. I'll prove it to you. Keep your finger there in Deuteronomy. Come back to Luke. And see what he says in verse 8. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall, serve, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now that's interesting. He's mostly right. Jesus mostly has the Bible memorized. We'll give him extra credit. He got most of it right. I guess a pretty close interpretation of the Bible will give me enough confidence to be able to face temptation this week. I'll wing it, quote a verse, and be fine. No. Jesus takes an Old Testament passage and he interprets it in a New Testament context where he is facing the greatest tempter the universe has ever known. And what he does in quoting Deuteronomy 6.13 is add a word. Well, just agree with me that Jesus is allowed to add words to the Bible. You can't. I can't. But we'll let Jesus take that freedom. Jesus perfectly applies this word to Israel and Deuteronomy to his own life because he understands Satan's schemes. He's insightful. He understands who Satan is. See, Satan's temptation turns on a very, very important word. Do you know what the word is? Satan's temptation works only because of the word if. Temptations in your life only work because of the word if. If you get what you want. If I get your worship, then you will have the thing that you desire. If opens all sorts of opportunities than you can imagine. If creates inevitable possibilities. If opens the promises to all of your dreams. If proposes to you what life could be. But Jesus' answer turns on a single word that is not in Deuteronomy, but it is in verse 8. What's the word? I'll give it to you. Don't guess. Only. His response turns on the word only is an exclusive word, not just a priority word. Only means there's only one king of my heart. Only means there's only one person I follow. No matter what the plan and the future holds for me, there's one person that I'm going to go after. There's one person that is more compelling to my spiritual sight than anything other than the world might be given to me. No matter what kingdom, what authority, what glory, no matter what it is, the Lord is the only one I will serve. Don't you want to applaud Jesus? 
Don't you feel the tension in your heart over all the possibilities that you believe? And here's Jesus standing in the face of temptation saying, only God. He's the one I follow. Him only will I serve. Now, why is it a temptation for Jesus? Because Jesus knows what's ahead. He knows what only is going to cost him. He knows that he's going to be rejected. He knows that he's going to take on the wrath of God. He knows that he's going to experience the most brutal version of of execution ever created. And he says, only God. Only him. I will serve him, though it costs me everything. See, God doesn't promise success. He doesn't promise the fulfillment of all of your personal dreams. He promises salvation. He promises to give you what you could not earn on your own. He promises to give you places that you didn't build. Right? That's the promise in Deuteronomy. Places that you couldn't dream of if you wanted to cisterns you didn't dig and fruit that you didn't produce and homes that you didn't build and land that you didn't till. And all of that is found in the one who when we stumble and we fall and we are tempted, tags in and steps into our life and says, I'm strong enough to take on that temptation. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he is the conquering hero over Satan, sin, and death for you? To give you what you could not earn. To succeed where all of us have failed. Let me close with Hebrews chapter 12. We did it last week. But apart from looking to Christ and being impressed and wowed and worshiping at the courage and the strength and the wisdom of who he is, how are you going to face temptation as you leave this afternoon? And here's what Hebrews says that we should do. Hebrews 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. Not trying to discern all the implications of the temptations you are facing, but run the race of endurance looking to the one who is smart enough and strong enough and insightful enough to accomplish something where you were only weak. To the degree that we are looking to Christ in our own temptation battles. To that degree, God's promises through the gospel of Jesus will become more real to us than our temptations. Right? To the degree that I pause and pray and seek his face and look to the hero who conquered Satan, sin, and death for me. To the degree that we meditate on Christ will be the degree to which the story of Satan and the narratives in this world and the mirage 
of the promises of the devil will begin to dissipate and our eyes will be set on Christ and we will receive all of what he has promised us. Father, we pause just for a minute to give great thanks for Jesus Christ. How wonderfully glorious and strong he is. And Father, at the same time, we confess how, how weak we are how we're prone to wander. We're prone to believe false stories and lies and because we're so quick to leave the God that we love. So, Father, for those in this room today, I pray that, Father, you would give them eyes to see your son Jesus Christ in new ways. That as we confess our sin and lay aside every weight and the sin that, quick, that clings so closely, give us endurance, give us eyes to see Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen.